have a Bible, you can follow along. If you don't, you can look up on the screen as I read. We're going to read chapter 41, verses 14 through 40, starting in verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming to store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you for giving us this story. Thank you for giving us stories that are timeless and that are true. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. We thank you that you're a God who's actively at work. We believe that you're at work in our lives and in our midst. And we pray that you speak clearly to all of us 
through what we experience this morning. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. So we're going to be talking um, a lot about power this morning. And something that I've noticed, and you've probably noticed it too, it's, it's not brand new, but it, it seems like it's enlarged, um, is that every four years when we have a presidential election, you see two pretty extreme reactions. You see on the one hand, euphoria, and you see on the other hand, utter despair. And one of the funny things that you can notice, at least it's funny to me, is um, how you can tell the objective journalists, you can tell what they really think by how they report the presidential election. You can tell the ones that are just beaming and happy about what's going on. And you can tell the ones that are just biting their tongues and trying to figure out a way to go on with the results that have happened. What you don't have in the year of a presidential election is a whole bunch of people saying, well, this didn't turn out how I wanted, but I'm sure it'll be fine. You have euphoria and you have despair. You have the highs and you have the lows. And I think that what this reveals about us is that most of us have a tendency to believe that our lives are determined by the powerful few. The reason that we're so deeply concerned about an election is that at the end of the day, we really believe that how our lives are going to turn out are dependent on the actions of a few powerful people in the world and will rise or will fall depending on them. And even this morning, as you're coming in, for some of you, that, that may really tie into the government. You may really find yourself in a cycle where you're transfixed on who's in charge and the decisions that they're making, whether it's the president or whether it's the governor, or whether it's local government. And you find yourself really in a difficult position. It would be difficult to talk you out of the fact that your life is going to be mostly decided and your destiny is going to be mostly decided by the people in those positions of power. And then for some of you, it might not be that you're thinking about the government a lot, but that there are certain people in positions of power in your life, and it would be hard to talk you out of the fact that those people are going to determine your destiny. So maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's the owner of your company. Or maybe getting even closer, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're thinking, whether I'm happy, whether I'm sad how my life turns out, how much money I have, whether I have a job, whether I don't have a job. It's not really dependent on me. It's dependent on the actions of a few powerful people in the world or a few powerful people in my life. And if that's how you see the world, it's, it's difficult to figure out what you do with that. There's a couple options and neither of them seem really good. One option is that you can just go into despair. You can just say, I can't do anything about it. Say, you know what, what's going to come is going to come. And I guess I just got to roll with it and I got to deal with it. But really, I'm utterly at the mercy of the powerful few. You can go into despair. Um, or another option that's, that's no better is that you can decide if only a few powerful people run things, then it is my life's goal to become one of those few powerful people. Whatever it takes to move up in my company, whatever it takes to have the ear of my boss, whatever it takes to make sure that the government works the way that I think that it's going to work, whatever it takes and whatever I have to compromise, I will make sure that I am the one determining how my life turns out. These are the things that we believe if at the end of the day we think that our destiny is determined by the powerful few. And then we have Genesis 41. 
We have this story, and one of the powerful things about it is it's an ancient story. This is a very old story, and yet it's dealing with this exact theme. It's dealing with the theme of power, and it gives us not only a different message, it gives us a completely different framework for even how we think about the idea of power and the people in charge. And most specifically, what this passage tells us is this, worldly power is never a threat to God's will. Worldly power never threatens God's will. And let me just define the term so that, so that you understand what we're going through here. Um, worldly power. Worldly power is describing the authority or the influence or the status that goes along with people having power in this current system. So this is the rich. These are the politicians. These are the famous people and the celebrities. These are the people that have status, influence, or authority in the way the world is currently set up. Worldly power never threatens God's will. And by God's will, what I mean is God's eternal unfolding plan for us as individuals and for the world around us. No matter what you see when you look at the people in power in our world, worldly power never threatens God's will. And hopefully you saw this theme as we read through the passage, but we're gonna walk through it now. Again, we're gonna walk through this great story. And the first thing that we're gonna need to do in this story is we're just gonna need to start with the question, how did we get here? So verse 14 is our starting point. Verse 14 says, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So we got Joseph being rushed from the dungeon into the throne room. How did we get here? Well, we got to go back further, not only to last week, but, but even the beginning. So, so just remember, all right, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham out of obscurity and decides through Abraham, God is going to build a family. He's going to build a people. And this people is going to be the group, is going to eventually be the nation through whom God will put himself on display to the world. The Jewish nation comes out of Abraham. So we're a few generations down the line. Abraham has a son named Isaac and the blessing and the promises are passed along to him. And then Isaac has two sons and one of his sons named Jacob has the blessing passed along to him. And then Joseph is Jacob's son. He's the 11th of 12 sons and he was Jacob's favorite. Jacob made no qualms about it. He didn't hide it at all. This made Joseph's brothers hate him and they hated him enough that they threw him into a cistern and then sold him off to be a slave in Egypt. And that's where we left him last week when we went through Genesis 37. And lots happened since then. Joseph was brought to be a slave in the household of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And actually at the beginning, relatively speaking, things were going okay. It's not good to be a slave in the foreign land, but he started getting favor. God was with Joseph and he ascended to the rank of second in charge of the entire household of Potiphar. Things were going pretty well until Joseph got falsely accused and thrown into prison. But even as bad as that was, God was still with him. And even in prison, as miserable as that was, Joseph ascended to be the second in charge of the prison. He was put in charge by the jailer of all of the other prisoners. And then as this was going on, two of Pharaoh's officials fell out of favor and got thrown into prison with Joseph. 
And while they were in prison, they each had a dream. And so Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer end up coming to Joseph and saying, we've had these dreams, we don't know what they mean. And Joseph says, tell them to me. God will tell me what they mean and I'll tell you what they mean. Joseph had had some experience with dreams and the whole idea here is not just that Joseph is doing some Freud dream interpretation. The idea here is that God is communicating with people through these dreams. So the cupbearer comes to Joseph and he tells him the dream and Joseph says, well, I've got good news for you. Here's what your dream means. Your dream means in three days, Pharaoh's gonna forget he was ever upset with you and he's gonna restore you to your position. And the baker hears this and he's like, I'm next. This is good news. I wanna know what my dream means. And he comes to Joseph and he tells him the dream and Joseph says, well, I have bad news for you. In three days, you're gonna be executed. And then I just imagine this. As soon as he gets done saying that, he turns right back to the cupbearer and he goes, all right, here's the deal. You're going to be back in power soon. When you're back in power, remember me. And he says, I'm in here unjustly. I didn't do the crime I was accused of. And anyway, I I was sold uh, illegally into this land. I don't belong here. When you get back in power, this is like Joseph's chance. I'm finally going to have a friend in high places. When you get back to your position, remember me and help me get out of this situation. Three days later, exactly what Joseph said happens. The baker's put to death. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh. And you know what the cupbearer does? Instantly forgets about Joseph. Forgets that ever happened and two years go by. And the cupbearer shows no attention to Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream. And he's so troubled by the dream that he's getting all of the wise men and he's getting all of the magicians and all of the sayers around to try to tell him what his dream means. And they're unable to do it. And I don't know, because there's a part of me that says, why didn't they just make something up? And they just say, here's what it means. Maybe they did. But maybe their explanation to Pharaoh was, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work with what I dreamed. I I still need help. He's deeply troubled over this. And he gets to the point that the cupbearer says, ooh, I just remembered something. (laughs) And you can understand, he didn't want to bring this up. He's like, "Uh, remember when you got mad at me and I was in prison? Well, just just forget that part. But anyway, (laughs) I was in prison. And while I was in prison, there was a Hebrew slave who was a prisoner with me. And I had a dream and he interpreted it. And exactly what he said came to pass. And Pharaoh says, bring him in. So they shave him and they bathe him and they bring him into the throne room. Now just pause here for a moment and take in how desperate must Pharaoh have been that he's bringing in Joseph. This doesn't strike all of us because we're like, well, Joseph is the main character in the story. Of course this happens. How desperate does Pharaoh have to get to the point that he says, a Hebrew slave rotting in prison, let's ask him. Imagine the president of the United States being stumped with an issue. He's talking to all his advisors. All right. I wasn't trying to do that right there. See, now this is why it's good to come to church and not just listen to podcasts. You get moments like that. So anyway, imagine any president... Who's asked all his advisors, doesn't know what to do, is just stuck, can't figure this out. They've exhausted all their resources. And then one of the advisors says, oh, oh wait, um, I, I know a guy. The president says, let's bring him in. And he says, well, well, let me just tell you, first of all, he's homeless. 
So he's a homeless guy. He doesn't have a lot of status. All right, we'll go off the street and get him. Well, no, he's not on the street. He actually got arrested. So he's a homeless guy who's in prison. How desperate would the president have to be to say, let's ask the imprisoned homeless guy if he can get us out of this? Pharaoh is desperate enough that he says, a Hebrew slave in prison, let's give it a shot. Now, here's why this is so important. Pharaoh is, by worldly standards, the most powerful person in Egypt. And not only that, Egypt is almost certainly at this time among the world powers, if not the greatest world power. You have the most powerful person in perhaps the most powerful nation on the earth, and he's so stumped that he says, let's get a Hebrew slave prisoner in here and see if we can get some help. And the Hebrew slave prisoner shows up. And what we get to see in the next segment of the story, we could call this Joseph in Pharaoh's court, but I really want to call this part of the story God in Pharaoh's court. Because Joseph makes sure quickly that that's what's going on and that we understand that. Verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph immediately responds and says, I cannot do it which seems like a bad start. (laughs) I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Which for most of us, if we were given Joseph advice, we'd say, don't say it that way. Just say, sure, tell me the dream. It will be taken care of. And instead, he seems to go out of his way to make sure that Pharaoh is going to know that it's not him who you should be impressed with. And part of what Joseph is doing is he's just saying to Pharaoh, I'm not a pro at this. You you had all your pros come in. You had all the people that studied the stars and that studied the signs and that read all the books. You've had all those people, people that studied dream theology and interpretation. You had all of them, they couldn't do it. I'm not one of those guys. I'm not a professional at this. I'm not trained in this. But the only reason you're gonna get your answer is because God is gonna tell you the answer. And one of the reasons this is so profound is because you know what the Egyptian people considered Pharaoh to be? They considered him to be a God. They considered him to be divine. A divine person, a supposedly divine person has been brought to such a desperate situation that he says, let's ask the Hebrew prisoner. And when the Hebrew prisoner comes in, he says, I can't do it you are going to have to humble yourself to realize that there is a God outside of you who's going to have to speak in to this situation. And so I'm not going to read, I read this earlier, I won't read every part of it, but in the following verses, then Pharaoh explains the dreams. And all right, so you got the seven really healthy cows, and then you have the seven lean cows, and they come out, and then the seven lean cows eat up the seven ugly cows. And this is, this is the part of the dream that's much more troubling I think I could deal with the grain. I don't know how bloody and how violent this was. This is just a disturbing dream. But then he has the parallel dream with the grains. All right, seven healthy heads of grain and then seven scorched heads of grain. But once again, the same thing happens. The unhealthy ones swallow up the healthy ones. He lays this out to Joseph. He says, nobody that I asked was able to help me understand this. And Joseph immediately goes into dream interpretation mode. God answered seemingly Joseph's silent prayer of saying, give me the ability to interpret this. 
And he starts into it saying, all right, all these sevens are years. So you've got two segments of seven years. It's the same dream being told twice because God wants to make sure you know that this is really going to happen. And I'll start reading in verse 28 as he gives the explanation. He says, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not, not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And if you remember the dream, Pharaoh specifically said, after the lean cows ate the fat cows, the lean cows didn't look any better. The fat cows were utterly forgotten. Verse 32, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And one of the beautiful things about this is this is a moment, it becomes evident later on, Pharaoh and all his officials are leaning forward and they are hanging on every word. Pharaoh's probably thinking in his head right now, this makes sense. I heard some other explanations, this makes sense of the dream. Something is happening here. The most powerful man in Egypt, perhaps the most powerful man in the entire world has been humbled before the one true God which just makes it so that maybe we should pause and just consider this. How unimpressed is God with powerful people? You could imagine, and I don't know if this was the case with Joseph, but you could imagine Joseph coming into the throne room and kind of being daunted by it. And there's all these colors and there's all this gold and these are important people. This is the king right here. These are important people. God is utterly unimpressed with Pharaoh. God is utterly unimpressed with the people that we consider to be powerful. Just imagine a conversation between God and Pharaoh where Pharaoh is trying to impress him. God's like, you built the pyramids. That's cute. Okay. <laughs> I spoke a word and stars went where I told them to go. I look at the waves of the ocean and I say, you get to come this far and then you stop right there. I snap my fingers and mountains appear. I speak a word and the animals, every animal shows up and I breathe the breath of life into human beings. But congratulations, Pharaoh, you balanced the national budget. Good job. <laughs> now take that over and just consider for a moment the people in your life right now that you are tempted to think that they are determining your destiny. Whether it's the president, whether it's the governor, whether it's your boss, whether it's your teacher, whether if you're younger, if it's your parents, whether it's your spouse, the people that you're thinking, they're really going to be the ones to decide how my life turns out. And just think for a minute how unimpressed God is with that person. You started a business. You got a degree. You won an election. God is not impressed with worldly power. How did a slave, a Hebrew slave in prison, end up getting a captive audience with the king of Egypt? He got that because worldly power never threatens God's will. And one of the funny things about this story is this would seem like this is the end of Joseph's speech. He told what the dream means, but Joseph just goes right on talking. He has something else to say. In fact, he has an idea about how to solve this. He could have stopped, but instead he risks overstaying his welcome by saying, and while we're talking about it, I got an idea. 
Verse 33, and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Says, Pharaoh, here's my idea. Seven good years. Don't just live it up during those years. Be wise. Store up the grain because the seven bad years are coming. And that way, during the seven bad years, you'll have the food that you need to get you through it when the harvest is bringing forth nothing. Says, you need a lot of commissioners, but you should put one person in charge of the whole thing. And as we go on, Pharaoh says, I have an idea about who that one person should be. Says the plan looked good, seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. And then in verse 38, it says, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? I don't know how this happened, but I imagine this being a little huddle where Pharaoh's like, guys, get in here. And he's like, we got to find anybody better than this guy. Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And this is almost certainly a moment where Pharaoh just said something much more true than he realized. Um, Another way of translating this would be one in whom is the spirit of the gods, which is probably what Pharaoh meant. Pharaoh probably isn't thinking of one specific God. He almost certainly isn't thinking of the God of the Jews, the one true God that we've been reading about all throughout Genesis, the one true God that we believe in as Christians. He's thinking of a pantheon of gods, and he's saying, I don't, there's something divine going on. I've never met somebody. I've never seen somebody in whom is the spirit, the divine spirit. And Pharaoh was more right than he realized. Because the only reason why Joseph could have known any of this, the only reason why he could have known the future and interpreted these dreams is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was giving him guidance and power to do all these things. Now just pause for a moment and take in the sobering reality that that Holy Spirit dwells in you full time if you're a believer in Jesus. He doesn't just come upon you for certain hard cases He dwells in you at all times. And one of the realities that God means to bring in our lives is that we would have people who look at us and realize we're not necessarily people of influence from a worldly standpoint. We're not necessarily people who are impressive or people of power from a worldly standpoint. But we are people in whom is the Spirit of God. And that's something that powerful people can't harness. That's something powerful people can't control. And that's something that the king of Egypt is looking at and saying, we got to have this guy on our side. We got to have the one in whom is the spirit of God on our side. So verse 39, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph, who was sold into slavery and then somehow ascended to be the second in charge of Potiphar's household and then was thrown to rotten prison, but somehow ended up being the second in charge of all prison, was brought into the throne room and became the second in charge of the most powerful nation on the earth. When God has a destiny for someone, no powerful person, not Potiphar, not Joseph's brothers, not Potiphar's wife, not the, not the cupbearer, not Pharaoh. Nobody can thwart 
God's plan and God's destiny for any person. Worldly power never threatens God's will. And here's part of the good news about all of this. If we really believe this is true, again, this is an ancient story that's so powerful for us today. If we believe this is true, where that leads us is that we get to look at reality and realize that God's power changes the way that we think about powerful people in at least a couple different ways. And the first way is this. It means that just as God is unimpressed with powerful people, we get to have a sober understanding of people in power. It doesn't mean that we disrespect them. It doesn't mean that we treat them in undignified ways. But it means that we don't idolize them and also we don't panic. It means we look at it and if the president that you wanted to get elected got elected, you're not so euphoric that you think that that person is a savior. And it means that if the president that got elected is somebody that you don't want anywhere near the White House, you don't have to panic as if God's plan is being thwarted. You get to have a sober understanding. Again, just think of God. God God is not impressed with any of our elections. He's been there before. He's going to be there after. The nations and the rulers are a drop in the bucket. It means we get to look at the powerful people, whether they're presidents or governors or employers or spouses or teachers, whoever they are. We get to look at them and not disrespect or disregard them, but we get to treat them as simply other people who are all in the hands of God. We get to actually have calm and peace during these times, which, by the way, maybe one of the things that would cause our neighbors and people around us to look at us and say, is this somebody in whom is the spirit of God? is if during troubled times when others are panicking, we're not. We have the calm and peace of God. Although for some of you, even what I'm saying right now, you might not quite be buying it. She might be saying, but they do have power. I mean, think of Joseph for a minute. His brothers had power to throw him in a pit. Potiphar had power to throw him into jail. The cupbearer had power to forget him right there. Sometimes we are at the mercy of other people. My boss could fire me. My spouse could leave me. My teacher could fire I could have all these bad things happen. In fact, sometimes there are people that even have the power of death over you. Look at that and say, I, I think they have a lot of power. But one of the beautiful realities that we get to embrace is that we are told that the God of the universe, for those of us who are believers, is working all things for our good. And one of the things that he says is that even death doesn't separate us from the love of God. There are some people who have worldly power and they're able to wield a fair amount of it. They are not powerful enough to thwart God's destiny for you or God's will for the world. It doesn't mean we're disrespectful. It simply means we look at even the most powerful people in the world and we say, you don't actually have as much power as you believe you do. And so we get to do the second thing, and that's that we get to go and appeal to the one who really does have all the power. Some of you right now are saying, if I could just get the ear of my boss, my life would be so much better. If I could just have the ear of the governor, things would get so much better. Some of us are really ambitious. If I had the ear of the president, I could fix this thing. You have the ear of the eternal God of the universe. When you pray, you're not simply practicing a spiritual discipline. You are calling out. You are crying out to the one who spoke the universe into being. 
If you are concerned about what's going on in the world, in your life, in your family, you can appeal to the one who's really in charge. And the great news is it's not hard for God to bring Joseph from the dungeon into the throne room. God has no problem doing that. In fact, God bringing Joseph from the dungeon into the throne room almost seems like a whisper of something else that he did. Almost seems like a whisper of something that he did a couple thousand years later when he brought somebody from the tomb into glory. Joseph's scholars throughout the years have constantly come back to the idea that Joseph's story seems to whisper about Jesus. There's just too many parallels to ignore it. You look at too many things, even down to the idea of the brothers, where Joseph is persecuted by his brothers. And if you're going through the LBF Church Bible reading plan right now, yesterday in John 7, what you read is that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They scorned him. Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison. Jesus was falsely accused and arrested. Joseph was utterly forgotten by his family. Jesus was utterly abandoned by all his friends and disciples. Joseph twice, just think about this. Joseph twice was basically thrown under the ground. Once in a cistern and once in a dungeon. Jesus was thrown into the ground after he died. And Joseph ascended from the dungeon into the throne room. Jesus ascended from death to life. God is telling us in this ancient story, this isn't hard for God. Worldly power never threatens God's will. And here's the best part of the story. Joseph's exaltation wasn't even about Joseph. It wasn't about God saying, I want to reward you. It was about God saving people. A famine is coming. And if nothing is done, all these people are going to die. In fact, Joseph's family was going to die. And Joseph suffered horribly so that his family could be saved. And then a couple thousand years later, Jesus suffered horrifically, not just so that he could be exalted, but so that his people could be saved. Not just saved from famine, saved from condemnation, saved from sin. Next week in the story, I'll just give you a preview. Next week in the, well, it won't be next week. It'll be in two weeks in the story. We'll be talking about, you see a great reconciliation. You see a fractured family finally healed. What Jesus did brought a fractured family together because he restored children to their heavenly father. We are adopted into the family of God because somebody suffered to save us. And one of the appropriate things that we get to do right now is we get to commemorate that suffering on our behalf because we're getting ready to take communion. If you're going to be helping with communion, you can head to the back right now. But I just want to give you a couple of thoughts as we get ready to take these elements. When we take communion, the the most obvious thing that we're doing is we are giving ourselves a visual and a physical reminder of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. We are healed by his suffering. We are saved by his death. The bread represents his broken body and the cup represents his shed blood. And we remember that and we commemorate that and we point our eyes back to that. And also even to the reminder of within that, how low Jesus was brought by worldly powers and how futile their efforts were against what God was actually doing. So as we get ready to take the elements, take this as a time to remember, to commemorate, to give thanks 
and to place your hope in Jesus, but use it as a chance to do one other thing also. Use it as a chance to think of the powerful people in your life right now that you are tempted to believe are really controlling the outcome of what's going to happen to you. And realize that even if they were to do their worst, their efforts would only turn out for God's ultimate good for you. God brings his people from the dungeon into the throne room. God brings his people from death to life. God brings his people from suffering to ultimately being conformed to the image of Jesus. Let's pray together as we prepare for this time. Father, thank you that we have something that we can commemorate here. Thank you that we have such great hope because of the suffering of Jesus, that he was willing to suffer so that we could be forgiven. He was willing to be condemned so that we could be adopted. He was willing to be brought low so that we would be exalted. Father, we pray that we would never forget this. And I pray now for for my friends here, and I pray for anyone who is overwhelmed by believing that they are living at the mercy of worldly powers. I pray that you would liberate them by realizing that the truth is that they live at the mercy of the one true great final power. And that that one true great final power sent his one and only son to prove his love forever. Speak to us, lead us, and be honored through this time, Father. In our Savior Jesus' name, amen.